everybody, welcome to the film room. It's been a while since we've been in this configuration. Yeah, we keep having guests on, how about that? Yeah. I'm not complaining. No, I'm not either. Uh, admittedly, we had we, di we did record one cast in the interim that will be showing up uh, at a later date, very soon actually, uh, that's standard config. But, it's just the two of us today, and it's that time of the year again. Uh, welcome to Hitchcocktober. We have a great set of films for you uh, this year. Uh, this year's focus is going to be Jimmy Stewart's films. We're going to look at uh, two of his four films that he did with Hitchcock, and we're starting today with uh, the one that ended the collaboration between Stewart and Hitchcock. Oh, did it really? Yes, this is the movie that ended that collaboration. Um, not on a pleasant note, either, I should note. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, we're looking at a movie that was widely considered a disappointment in its day, and as of 2012, topped the highly influential Sight and Sound poll of uh, Best Films Ever. Is the film an epic flop, or is it the uh, greatest film ever? Well, it's it's neither. But it's a really, really, really damn good film, and uh, that's why we're uh, going to be digging into Vertigo today. Yeah, for a long time, this was my favorite, favorite Hitchcock film. But yeah, if you notice, like, every every copy you'll see of the film today... Is a restored version, and therefore has the uh, the 80s Universal logo at the front of it. Which I noticed. Rather than an old one. And of course, I think it was originally released through Paramount? Yeah, they really had to restore this film, because I guess it was not kept in great shape. It was even out of circulation for about ten years or so. Ugh, yeah. Like, if, if you know anything about Mistivision, I think we might have talked about this a little last time. It's a um, horizontal film format. Um, so the film hit, sits horizontally so the picture can be bigger and clearer. And it's also separated into three colors. That's uh, good old-fashioned Technicolor there. Yes. So you have three strips of film, basically, to match up and restore. And, you know, if it's not properly kept, you know, film shrinks and does weird stuff. So that's not an easy task, but they did a really good job because yeah. it is so full of color and is uh, the picture is gorgeous and something i noticed of course it's shot in san francisco mm -hmm. uh he used the location very well so was the room <laughs> yeah it's it's impossible not to think about the room in some of the shots yeah like the big dome thing yes but the and you see and you see the different like you know the room did have a professional crew on it but you see the difference between, like, a shot of that location in the room and then Hitchcock shooting it. It looks bigger and grander and more colorful. It's, it really is interesting, of course. I have no doubt that that may or may not have played into things. Uh, Wiseau was, after all, a classic film buff, and I have very, I have very little doubt that he was uh, a, a fan of this film. I, I can see... Amazingly enough, I can see the influences <laughs> of Vertigo on the room. I really can. Oh yeah, the obsession factor would really play into that, yeah. Especially, there are some shots that really and truly, why so lifted. The, the span across the Golden Gate Bridge, which I know that's a cliche shot, but there's a very specific sense that why so was trying to get that. Oh yeah, it's there. <sighs> yes, we are, we're going from uh, a film considered one of the greatest of all time to a film considered one of the worst. We can cover such ground on this cast. Plus, the room is our namesake, so, you know. It always has to come back to that. <laughs> but, I mean, this was this was a film that 
in its day, as I said, was a disappointment. Although it's funny, I was reading that the that the reason that it was considered a disappointment was because it made a very minuscule profit, and all things considered, probably lost a bit, just a bit of money, not much, but a bit, in its initial release. But you have to consider that that was also extremely common then, as it is now. The film just making back its budget in gross receipts wasn't that much of a flop. The problem was that Hitchcock was Hitchcock. He was used to his films being extremely popular, so he he took he took the failure of this one pretty hard. Yeah, especially during you know, that area era when you know, I think this was his American movie era. Yeah, well, just to be clear, the next film that he would shoot would be North by Northwest. Oh, well, there you go. Which would, of course, go on to be a tremendous financial success. I, I mentioned earlier that this was the end of the Hitchcock-Stewart uh, collaboration. Hitchcock blamed Stewart for the film's failure. His reasoning was that because uh, Stewart was uh, 25 years older than his uh, co-star Kim Novak, that that was the reason that the film failed. He would then go on to cast an actor four years older than Stewart in his next movie. I was going to say, I don't think Cary Grant is much younger. He was four years older. Right. Yeah. And I did, watching the film this time, I haven't seen it in, I don't know, seven, eight years. I did note, like, you know, they mentioned at one point that Kim Novak's character is supposed to be 26. That's when I was, oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart's not that young. No. I mean... I'm going to get into my thoughts on that relationship when it comes time to actually discuss the film. But, I mean, we should cover, I guess, a bit of the backstory. Basically, this is a movie that came into existence out of jealousy over another movie. Hitchcock was, I suppose you could say, a fan, but it was more that he was angry that he didn't get to make it of the film Diabolique. Uh, the, uh, oh, yes, which is a uh, MSG3K film, isn't it? No, you're thinking of Codename Diabolic. Ah, oh, damn. Okay. Diabolique is a very different film. Widely considered one of the <laughs> scariest films of all time. Uh, I believe that was Clouseau that directed it, and it's widely considered one of the best horror films of that era. Well, I mean, not really horror, suspense. Hitchcock felt that he should have gotten to make the film. Uh, it was made, of course, in France. He he felt like, oh, this this is something that I should have done. Hitchcock, as a result, uh, decided that he would adapt, since that was based on a book, he decided he would adapt the next book that the writers did. And that's exactly what he did. Sort of. The film went through a tortuous screenwriting process. I know that he hired several screenwriters and then threw out uh, their scripts um, and uh, was unhappy with it. And ultimately, the uh, guy that wrote the final draft, uh, Samuel uh, Taylor, he basically was working from Hitchcock's notes, and he never read the original book. Hmm. So uh, that's basically the story behind the film. Um, initially, it was always going to be Stewart in the lead. He wanted Miles, who he would work with on Psycho, to play the central female role of Madeline. She uh, couldn't do it. She was pregnant, and uh, so uh, Hitchcock went with Novak. I think she was more or less pushed on him, to my understanding. In the recent film Hitchcock, isn't there a, a plot line where uh, he's, like, really tired of Kim Novak? I think so. I, I haven't seen it. Oh, you haven't seen it? Oh. I have to admit. I, I just have to pause to note, 
there are only so many films that I get to watch in a day, sadly. And I'm yeah. and I'm juggling TV work too. You know, I have TV shows that I watch, podcasts I listen to. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a huge media consumer. I just got around to watching Captain Phillips after too long of a delay this week, after all. So, but you know, the project came together, and uh, as I said, on initial release was not much of a success. But over time, accumulate. Uh, Part of it was that it had a very mixed critical reception of the, at the time. And I just want to pause now to note, pay attention to this fact because this comes up over and over again. And if you think it's not still happening, it's always still happening. You would be amazed by the films that wind up being the ones that last. It's not always your blockbusters, people. A lot comes from rediscovering a movie on video. That's what happened here. That is absolutely what happened here. Uh, the film got rediscovered, as I said, as you noted, there was the 1996 restoration, which has since become the standard for the prince, and looks gorgeous. The film looks just pristine. Oh yeah. And uh, as I said, in 2012, it topped the sight and sound poll. It's listed on many greatest films of all time list. I have a feeling that Hitchcock would find all of that a little bit funny since he didn't take the film all that seriously while making it. Even though he was let down by the film's reception, he still didn't take it all that seriously. Um, at one point, Stewart came to him during production with a, a question about uh, something in the film, and Hitchcock was like, why, why do you care? It's just a movie. <laughs> he didn't. Oh, man. He didn't take it all that seriously. Um, in fact, in the uh, famed book of interviews between uh, Francois Truffaut and Hitchcock this only rates a few pages it was uh, it was it was it was a minor letdown and Hitchcock moved on i don't even know that he got to see the film really as well received uh, as it became in his lifetime i doubt that no he uh, it came back in the province in the 80s and he died in 1980 yeah so he so never he, not. he never had the chance to see the rediscovery and I don't think he would have particularly cared, to be honest. No. Like, it was my flop. Why do you care now? Like, it's that, it's that you know, winning a Lifetime Achievement Award Oscar and uh, going up and his acceptance speech being simply, thank you. That's That was the most <laughs> honest speech of all time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, keep in mind, Alfred Hitchcock never won a, a competitive Oscar. No. I mean... If anybody wants to know why awards don't really matter at the end of the day, I mean, look, I love to follow the Oscars. I love to watch them. They're important in their day and not even then sometimes. And yeah. Hitchcock, Kubrick, these are guys that never won. I'm kind of amazed Scorsese actually did finally go on ahead and win. I mean, I, I could list all of the directors today that haven't won, and it would blow your mind. I mean, Crash won Best Picture. What more do I need to say? We're going to get to that one at a later cast. I'm just going to say right now, that one is going to be a cast. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. And I think you can hear in my voice what kind of a cast it's going to be. Yeah. And I have a feeling from discussing it on Twitter that a lot of y'all are probably applauding and going, Wow! <laughs> but enough dithering around. Let's, let's get to the film, because I know we both watched it this week. Uh, I'd never seen it. I have to be honest, a lot of these movies that I'm watching, with the exception of North by Northwest last year, I'm just seeing for the first time. Hmm. That's one of the reasons that I'm so eager to do these casts, 
is because they give me the chance to see these films. Yeah. They give you a nice a nice uh, excuse. Mhm. I mean as I said, as I said at the outset of the cast, I this is a damn good film. How much of the plot do we I mean we're going to ultimately have to spoil the whole thing. Oh, of course. Um the thing kind of spoils itself in the middle. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that that middle scene is actually in the original release. It is, but Hitchcock debated putting it in there until the very end. He gotcha. flip-flopped back and forth on it quite a bit. You know, I kind of did too um, on whether it should be in there. I think seeing it again last night, I think it does belong in there. Because otherwise, I want to say he comes off as a creep. He does anyway. Yeah. But um, at least you know it's for a reason. You know, his behavior is not acceptable in any way, shape, or form. It's very appropriate, but... There's complicated motivations. Yeah. At least you know that, yeah, he's not completely crazy. As far as, you know, knowing that it's her. Uh, Before we even get into the film, I should note, if you have not seen the film... First of all, turn off our podcast. Um, Yes, watch it, come back. Watch it and come back. Secondly, if you have seen the film, pay note of the the fact that the DVD case, out and out, is wall-to-wall spoilers for everything but (laughs) the last twist. Uh, It makes you think, as I said, I I hadn't seen the film until now. I knew enough about it via cultural osmosis. That I pretty much knew right. all the twists. But the DVD case would have you believe that the plot, what it tells you is the plot of the movie, doesn't really kick in until the hour and five minute mark. Yeah, that's another thing I noticed for the first time last night. All the first act stuff is done by uh, by the hour mark, which the movie is like 130 minutes long. Yeah. So that's half the runtime. I mean, this is a, th- that, that opening half of the movie doesn't ever get discussed in any real detail. I had thought walking in that, okay, this is going to be over and done in your standard 30-minute mark. Um, If even that, I figured it might even be sooner. Oh no, it's very fleshed out in that first act. This is not a film to study if you want to study screenwriting structure at all. I I believe the third act is played out like in the last 20-25 minutes. Oh, and if, if even... I mean, the second act is incredibly brief. Yeah. I mean, as I said, in, in terms of trying to put this on the act structure, the Sid Field-style act structure, this is this is hell on earth. Right. Even beginning, middle, and end are a little confusing with this movie. Don't get us wrong. It's a very entertaining film. Oh, no, no, no. We're highly recommending it. Yeah, it's a, it's fun to watch, but as far as act structure, it's just fucked. Yeah, it's... it's, it's, it's it's a nightmare, and that's okay, because the film works. Yeah, yeah. Take note of this. You can get away with any sin in cinema as long as the film works. Right. And, oh, this is this is a good one for talking about films that work. The plot is... How do you start with the plot? Pretty simply, like, yeah, Jerry Story develops, well, Vertigo, from his, from his job as a cop. Another cop gets killed by a result of trying to help him from dangling off a roof. Which is a great sequence. Oh, it's a great sequence, yeah. Eventually we're going to get to that effect. You know which one. What is it supposed to be, like a year later? Yeah. He's 
off the force, he's kind of still seeing a psychiatrist about his vertigo. And, uh, or ac acrophobia. They never actually do call it vertigo. It does get called that once. It gets called that once. Once? Okay. And, of course, the big, the, the plot line that does get resolved in the middle, well, actually, it doesn't get resolved. It just ends. Yeah. His relationship to Midge, which is a weird, complicated one. They were engaged some time ago, but now they're friends, but she still kind of likes him, and it doesn't really go into much detail about what the relationship is at the moment. They're, they're exes who are still close friends, is what I took yeah. from it. She's a character that had not come up in pretty much any of my studies. Like, in any of the minor knowledge that I knew about the film, I knew nothing about this character. I forgot she was in it. And that's kind of criminal, because she's actually a very important presence in the film. Uh, a very strong, potent force. Uh, she's depicted very much as an independent woman. It's kind of implied that that's why the relationship fell apart. Right, yeah. The uh, the actress that plays the part, uh, Barbara Belgettis, I think is how the last name pronounced him, does a really phenomenal job. She's a potent force of life in the film. Like, Jimmy Stewart's character kind of has a... Um, even if all this shit didn't happen to him, he kind of has a alt, you know, don't worry about... Uh, taking care of yourself, I'll take care of you kind of mentality. Even to the point of, you know, it's, it pushes that uh, personality trait in the film. It pushes, like, you know, to the point of obsession. You know, and I'm sure that that's might have been a little bit what happened to them in their relationship, too. Yeah. Maybe not to that extreme, but, you know, he pushed it over her limit and she called it off. Yeah, I think it does strongly imply that she's the one that called it off. It does, very strongly. Uh, yeah. And, again, Stuart, his performance in this film, I mean, again, I've got so much to say on it, but in these early scenes, you can tell right from the start that this is a character who is mentally damaged from the word go. Just from the trauma that he suffered, and that's kind of the irony of the film, is he has this drive to take care of and take control of the situation, and he is not in control of anything in the entire film, if you really get right down to it. Even at the end, he is so not really in control of anything. Uh, this was a theme that was pointed out uh, by uh, the critic David Shreve, uh, pointed this out in uh, his review, which I, I do want to link to. Uh, he, he pointed this out in his review, which, uh, uh, you know, talking about that that's a big theme of this movie is powerlessness, and he's right. So even in this early scene, like you see how he's trying to show that he's conquered his, that he can conquer his fear of heights. Right. And he can't. I mean, immediately you've got that. But um, Stewart's character of John Scotty Ferguson, and we don't ever really get an explanation for the uh, nickname. No. I, I'm sure that might have made more sense in the cultural context, and I'm sure somebody can explain it to me. I don't, I don't particularly care. No. I'm sure it has a, some sort of backstory, like, in-world, but, I, you know, like the Mag like his MacGuffins, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's just, I think it's just mainly used as a marker for... Intimacy. Yeah. Okay, Mr. Ferguson's like, oh, no, I won't like that. You can call me John or Scotty. He's like, I'll just call you John. And later, when they're falling more and more in love, she calls him Scotty. 
For simplicity's sake, I'm going to go with Ferguson because the character's called a billion things through the movie, so there, for simplicity's sake, that's what I'm deciding. But anyway, what happens is that Ferguson is called by an old friend, uh, and it's while he's called out to this that we get something we have to, of course, note. Cameo. Yeah, this was the point where uh, he just got the cameos out of the way. Mm -hmm. But he's uh, he, he can be seen at uh, the uh, friend's shipyard. So, look, look closely, he's there. Don't even have to look that closely. <laughs> he knew to make it obvious so that you didn't accidentally miss it. But anyway, he goes to see an old friend from school who uh, asks him to uh, follow his wife, who is acting strangely, who is acting out of sorts. Um, she's not acting right. She seems to be possessed by another person. The wife is play is uh, named Madeline and played by Kim Novak. She seems to be obsessed with uh, an ancestor who she seems to be the reincarnation of. A madwoman who took her own life. I found it harder to identify the film's The MacGuffin, and I'm kind of going to lean on this maybe as the film's MacGuffin. All this backstory. I was thinking of that too. You know, I, I just took it as well the MacGuffin is murder. But that's not really revealed till later, so it's not, so it can't really be. But I think you're right. The um, the backstory definitely is. And uh, you know, we have to note the cultural context and why this probably threw a lot of people off. Is that past life regression stories were very popular in this day? Oh, and he was way into psychology too. Mm -hmm. This was big time the era of people wanting to know who they were before and. I have so many thoughts on that subject, um, but, you know, the word bunkum comes... Right. Most of the... The thing about it is it's a fascinating concept for stories, and I, I don't blame Hitchcock for seeming to go down that route. The catch is that, um, well, we'll find out later, but, you know, and these sequences take up a lot more of the film than you would expect. Uh, him trailing her. Oh, yeah. And there... They're really damn good, to be honest. Even though you know, even though you know inherently that you're being lied to, because of the cultural osmosis thing, and because the back of the DVD case out and out tells you that something else is going on, and that that's not really the plot of the film, it's still engaging. It's still an interesting mystery. Finally, Madeline attempts to th to kill herself by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, by jumping off the, uh... Well, not the, the bridge. The area. The area next to it, yeah. She she tries to off herself, but uh, Ferguson comes to her aid and finds her. And uh, this leads to a very striking scene uh, between uh, the two of them at his apartment. After he's undressed her and uh, she's lying in his bed naked but for a sheet. <laughs> yeah. And we're reminded of how much you could get away with in the era when you couldn't get away with anything. This is like 1955? Uh, 58. There's a, there's a sexual charge to these scenes, and it's right here that I have to just take a moment to call Hitchcock out on his idea that uh, Stuart was too old to be plausible with Novak. Oh, Stuart was double her age. There's a chemistry. There's a definite chemistry there. It's, there is an unmistakable and real chemistry. This is Stuart as we've never really seen him before in a film. There's, there's, there's a predatory edge to him. 
even when he's trying to be the nice guy, you can feel that predatory edge slipping in. I mean, even when subconsciously, you can even tell. He doesn't even intend to be doing it, but there's still that that scene between the two of them when she's in his bed. It is so charged. I mean, and how could it not be? I mean, it's just, there, there's a real intensity to it. They wind up seeing each other behind his friend's back. Uh, yeah. The movie never out and out says it, but you can tell that he wasn't that good of a friend. Yeah, especially toward the end when you find out what's really going on. Yeah. But they do start to form a bond and they do start to fall in love. The problem is that she slips deeper and deeper into her madness. Uh, this is a pretty elaborate murder scheme. This is a very elaborate murder scheme. This is a needlessly... El- yeah, because, I mean, you know, he talks to... While he's following her around, he talks to witnesses who says, Oh, yeah, she's been doing this for weeks. It's like, that's before his involvement. It is... This is <laughs> this is so not worth it. It's, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> I mean, again, when it's all unveiled, you're just sitting there going, Oh, this is so not worth it. Right. <laughs> um, but, again, such was that era... And so we're just, right. we're going to let it pass, but no, this really is a pretty ridiculous plot line if you, uh, yeah. the murder if you really stop to think about it. I mean, if you stop to think about it, this entire movie is pretty ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, the, uh, but eventually this leads to, uh, a mission where Madeline winds up climbing a clock tower, or it's a bell tower, it's a bell tower. Bell tower, yeah. And, uh, very very famous scene, very famous setting, and of course, he can't make it to talk because of his vertigo, which was the whole plan as to why they got him involved. Mm-hmm. And which is very sadistic. It is. This is oh, this is a sick plot. Um, I have to note that it seems fitting that this is a chance for us to finally bring up Hitchcock's Catholicism. I think it's fitting that this scene, that this vital sequence, takes place at an old mission. Because, for the unaware, Hitchcock had a complex relationship with Catholicism. But, at the end of the day, was a practicing Catholic, attended weekly Mass, and gave a great deal of money to Catholic charities. He, he might have kind of downplayed it in interviews, but, I mean, the man did at least have some devotion to the organization. Uh, again, I'm sure somebody could provide me with more details, and it would probably be useful to have those as time goes on. But that's basically what I've been able to interpret, is that, you know, at the very least, Hitchcock was raised in the Catholic world, and this was a project, you know, everything he did had that that fear, that anxiety that he grew up uh, surrounded in. Much like an, uh, an, another uh, filmmaker of today, uh, Martin Scorsese. So I just thought, I mean, I realized that was probably more of a coincidence than anything else, but it was interesting that this vital sequence takes place on this location and so that's you have that thread going through this film so madeline takes her own life apparently and you know apparently, while yeah. and let's let's pause to talk about that effect the uh, vertigo effect in that because it's so yeah. well used in the scene uh, and he is indeed called a Virgo effect. I'm sure it has another name. No, now, it doesn't. But that's why I'm. It doesn't. Forever going to call it. It doesn't. Oh, good. 
So that's why I forever have called it and forever am going to call it because he invented this effect. It is used so much in film. Like, it's it's been used uh, in very creative ways. Like, yeah, Scorsese has used it a lot. It's a very good effect. But yeah, it's basically, for those of you who don't know what it is, and we will have a... I'll put like a video or a GIF or something up on the blog so you can see it in action. But... Um, it's a really cool kick-ass effect where you see, like, it's it's a perspective trick. It's a practical camera trick where the scenery seems to just stretch out. Um, basically, it's a, uh, you know, pulling back on the camera and zooming in at the same time. It It you is know, a... Very simple. It is a very simple effect, and it... I mean, as I said, yeah, it's... Here's the thing. Even if there is a quote-unquote official name for it, you're not going to hear it called that within the industry because out of respect, you're not going to hear it referred to as anything else. I'm, and it, it is so funny how so many great... So many of the most impressive illusions with the camera are done in the simplest ways. Yeah, the first time I learned about forced perspective, it blew my mind. Yeah. You can rig a, a steady cam using boards and uh, a simple dolly. Yeah. Uh, which they did on uh, Evil Dead. The, uh, oh, yeah. The he first used a one. lot of those rigs. If you look up, um, I think there's like a guide to all the all the custom rigs he made for that film. It's it's incredible. Never think that computers are the be all end all on this stuff. A lot of times, it's it is just the simplest stuff. Uh, the Lord of the Rings films are for all the CG they have on. They're based on all those practical effects. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Christopher Nolan. So much of his stuff is practical, but you know, y you have this this thread running through film of these tricks and the, these illusions, and that uh, again, all this happens at about the halfway mark. Um, the next scene was one that uh, really, it, it's just, it's, it's a sad, tragic scene because Ferguson is interviewed, he's interviewed at the uh, inquest. And they're like, needlessly uh, cruel to him. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, this was a scene that Shreve noted at length, and he's right. I mean, it's, it is such a, it's the most powerless that he gets in this film, and you feel for this guy because... He is he has been taken advantage of so completely. And we don't even know how. Yeah, yeah, at this point we don't. But the the guy that's doing inquest is like, oh yeah, even though that even though this will have no bearing on your decision, this guy did not act you know, appropriately should because of his vertigo. It's, it's one of those, you know, how dare he have a mental illness kind of thing that prevents him from taking action. Boy, that's not a theme I'm used to in my life. Oh yeah. It's it's just one of those wow. It, it, it's it's an agonizing scene and it's so well shot, and yeah, it is. You can you can see the pain and agony on um, on Jimmy Stewart's face. I mean, really, I'm not discussing Stewart's work enough in in this because this is probably the best thing he ever did. Yeah, I mean, all those people who say that you know he can't act and he can, he only acts like himself. Watch, watch at least this scene, because Jesus, it's painful. Okay, he had a distinctive voice, but he could definitely, he could provide 
this raw power that just few actors of his age could. He, this is this is something unique to watch. Um, and as would happen, time goes by, and uh, Ferguson is committed to a mental institution for a time, and that's. That's a really brutal detail. That detail, I think, hit me harder than anything else in the film. Because of my own mental issues. To be reminded that, of how cruel society could be to, you know, because this man was only trying to do the right thing, and it breaks him. Yeah. Yeah, and this is also, um, the character of Midgia. This, This is her final farewell in the film. Um, and it's the and it's kind of embodied in her, you know, in the um, um, you know, in the pain that he's feeling, and she is also feeling by proxy, you know, the fact that he will, ne- you know, cer- you know, he'll get better, but he'll never really recover from this. No, you you feel for him. He he's a man who is despondent and broken. And walking the streets and thinking he sees her everywhere. Until he kind of sort of does. Yeah. He runs into a woman who is a brunette dead ringer for this one, for uh, his beloved Madeline. Her name is Judy. She's got all the identification to prove that she's not Madeline. And she's also played by Kim Novak. Sort of. Um, one of the myriad bizarre details that I read about this film and bear with me for the fact that I'm even going to bring this up is that uh, when she played Judy one way that Novak differentiated the character in an effort to try and make it so that the character seemed freer was to go without a bra ah this is true this is this is true very interesting very strange details to learn well it worked because you know she looks similar. Like you can kind of tell it's the same person, but at the same time, uh, she looks different enough that you that sows a seed of doubt that it is. Uh huh. She seems, you know, and she delivers a very different performance as Judy. As Judy, she's a much mm-hmm. brassier, much bolder, much livelier figure. I mean, yeah. For for all that we could go into about Hitchcock's issues with women. He could get some amazing performances out of them. Yeah. He may not have particularly liked them, but he could sure as hell direct them. Yeah. And, I mean, again, Novak, she she gives this very bold performance in the film. As a woman who, again, what's funny is, you almost kind of have to squint to see how much Ferguson sees in They don't really look that much identical. But... Again, if you have not turned off the cast by now, and you have not picked up on the fact that we are going into full spoilers, and you don't know what's going to go on, we're about to drop the film's epic bombshell twist, which actually is dropped about midway through the film. And it's done so in a scene that Hitchcock actually wavered on did he want in the film, right to the last minute. In this scene, Judy writes a letter to Ferguson that will never be delivered. And in the letter, she reveals that she is, in fact, the actress that was hired to portray Madeline. The actual Madeline uh, was pushed out the uh, bell tower, but Ferguson never saw her to identify her. She was made to impersonate her, 
so that Ferguson could be a solid witness in the inquest and have the death rule to suicide. But, for lack of a better word, she is the, she is the woman that he fell in love with. She even, um, at some point, is her, you know, at the end of, um, you know, while they're at the mission, uh, she even breaks a bit in her performance um, as Madeline by you know, saying, oh, this wasn't supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, before going in and yeah, offing yourself, so to speak. It's a very subtle detail that you have to really be paying attention to, but but we find out that, again, as is the theme of this movie, Ferguson is being used. Or at least he has been used. And why the reason that she reconnects with him is that she genuinely did fall in love with him. And she wants to be with him. You know, and this is where I think it was a good idea for him to have included that scene rather than leave it out because, you know, it makes more sense um, um, as to why she sticks around and basically lets him do this to her. Because any other per any other woman in that situation would have went, you know, this is good. This is getting way too creepy. Fuck off. And what Ferguson does in these sequences is beyond unnerving. It's mm -hmm. it's 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 pretty damn repulsive. It's frightening what he does to her. He Ferguson gets downright abusive to her because this this is a case where I never fail to talk to love talking about dramatic irony. It is one of my favorite devices in the world. When the viewer or the reader knows something that the characters don't. Because rather than removing the suspense from a scene, it only amplifies it greater. If we know that something is going, is going to happen or is going on that the other character doesn't, it just makes it that much scarier because of what happens when it all does come out. Yeah, it's the anticipation. I mentioned this earlier that I watched Captain Phillips uh, the other day. Pretty much every scene until the kidnapping is terrifying, even though they're pretty mundane, run-of-the-mill scenes, because we know what's going to happen. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, if you're familiar with what actually happened in the case, it stays terrifying to the end because then it's going to be like, okay, what's going to happen when the next phase of the story happens? You know, Paul Greengrass is a master of that uh, in his films, exploiting dramatic irony. Uh, United 93 is entirely based upon that. Wow. I mean, because think about it. We know what's going to happen on this day. We know what the last shot of this movie is going to be. Nobody in the film yeah. does. So, again, that, that, that runs through the film. Getting back to, to Vertigo, what happens in the next act of the film is a tremendous reversal of our emotions that we felt to this point. To this point, we've been we've been in sympathy with Ferguson. That was just what are you doing? Because basically, what he does is uh, he tries to mold her into Madeline, like piece by agonizing piece, like making her. Going clothes shopping and being like extremely specific with the kind of dress that he wants to, you know, try for. And of course, oh, even before that, she wants to have this relationship with him, but really it is kind of on the heels of another woman, mm -hmm. you know, a person that she is not because she was just playing that person. Yeah, he's not 
he is not at any point in this film in love with Judy. No. At, at no point no, does not at all. he express any feelings for the actual woman. He wants the character. And he is so blinded by his fixation on this character that he never notices that he's working with the actual flesh and blood that he was so obsessed with. That's what makes... I mean, I think right there, that's the reason that this film has had such legs is because... I mean, if you if you want to point to anything that stands out about this movie, it's that idea stays with you. Because that is such a creepy concept. And I think that's what unnerves people about the movie. Hitchcock subverts one of his own tropes in uh, the scene where he finally, like, he does the final transformation, which is, you know, he asks... Um, he dyes her hair basically you know he she refuses to do the final touch which is you know the the bun swirl thing um and then he finally does it and she steps out and she's you know it's that ah there she is and then they start making out and you know one of the hitchcock tropes is to spin the camera around while while the characters are making out and it's supposed to be this grand romantic thing well this it's extremely creepy you know, you, it's a great effect. I don't know if it's... I don't know exactly how he does it. Uh, but it starts out in the hotel room. As it pans around, the setting changes to the stables of the old mission. Uh, you know, and he's noticing this. And then it pans back around and it's back in the hotel room. It's it's a very good, very subtle effect. Mm-hmm. And it, very well done. And it's very unpleasant to watch. I mean, it's just... Yes. This this entire romance is the lighting on this. There's that great scene of her bathed in the green light of the hotel yeah. sign. And, and it's unnerving. I mean, this, this entire relationship is wrong. It's toxic. These two people need to get... They need to get on different planets. That's just how bad it is. Yeah, they need to get as far away from each other as humanly possible. I mean... Because she's clearly traumatized by what, by what happened. He's clearly traumatized by what happened. And none of them are willing to admit that to each other. Neither one of them will admit it to each other. And because there's this secret between them, I mean, just everything about this is wrong and it's dirty. And, I, you know, Hitchcock, of course, was legendary for his blondes. Oh, yes. And in this movie, that really feels unnerving. The the fact that yeah. he wants... In fact, they actually, for Madeline's suit, they deliberately chose a gray suit because it looks wrong on a, on a blonde. Ah, okay. that's not a color you see blondes wear. That makes sense. And it does make sense. It washes you out. I did not even think... That's very subtle. I did not even think about that. Well, the costumes... I noticed the costumes were done by the great uh, Edith Head... Yes, Dottie. Uh, that's just it. We're always going to think of her uh, of her impersonation, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Damn you, Brad Bird. Yeah, although um, the makers of The Incredibles would claim that's not that uh, Edna Mole is not based on any one person, but just the archetype. Bullshit. 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 <laughs> that's that's all I have to say to that. But but I mean, you know, the costumes and that, that is, I mean. The styles in this movie are great, but but they deliberately chose that. I mean, there is this this wrongness, 
And the anger that Ferguson has when things are wrong, his fixation on details. I, you know, again, I could talk for hours on this one thing because this is what I found so fascinating about the film is that he does have this deranged obsession and it really is creepy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's creepy as fuck. And, and Stuart holds nothing back. I think it's fitting that this this is the film that ends their uh, partnership because where do you go from there? You don't. You don't. You just don't. But we, I suppose we should address the film's climax. Oh yeah. It all comes out in the worst way. She makes a critical mistake. Mm. Mm, right, right. The necklace. She, she chooses to wear a necklace that the quote-unquote ancestor wore. Um, at which point... By this point, we've already figured out that the backstory that we were told was a little true, a little not. She she has to be sentimental and keep a trophy from it. And she wore it. And that, that for him, is the key he realizes he's been had. Yeah. They drive out to the mission. He confronts her. And basically, Ferguson tries to fix the past. He tries to relive the incident and fix it. Yeah, basically, now my memory is telling me um, that he forced her up the tower at gunpoint, but I know that he didn't. <laughs> but that's how that's he, how tense that scene is. He forces her up the tower. He does conquer his fear by being yeah. otherwise psychotic. That's the that's the sad part. He he conquers it by being crazy anyway, and uh. that's when. This movie goes to its all-too-inevitable conclusion. She gets startled. And falls right the fuck off the tower. And sadly, history decides, nope, nope, gonna repeat myself as was. Yeah, and you know that the cycle is going to start over again. And, you know, the the very last line is delivered by the nun that startles her. May God have have mercy on her soul. And then she rings the bell. Yeah, and that's and that's when the movie ends. Let's just take a moment yeah. to think about that. The movie ends so quickly, you're almost like, wait, what? There's yeah. It also ends with him, it's uh, him. Important to note, standing like right on the edge of the tower, looking over at her dead body. Same same as he did with uh, you know the cop at the beginning. There's no doubt in in anybody's mind this. Uh, that this is, I mean, this is the worst ending that you could expect for this character. This is a very anticlimactic ending, to be perfectly blunt. It's so sudden, it's so rapid, that there is no denouement. There's none. I, I know people thought that it was strange that Tarantino ended Death Proof with uh, the death of Kurt Russell and then immediately cutting to the end. Right. But you have to understand, that's how movies ended back in the day. There was no denouement. It's the same it's the same with uh, uh, North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They ended the exact same way. Like, you get you got a quick resolution and then train going into tunnel. That's it. That's it. I mean, you don't get any more. Um, I don't know if that's particularly satisfying, to be perfectly honest, but that's because I'm a yeah. modern viewer. And b- because really, what more do we need to be told? We know what's going to happen to Ferguson. Yeah. Same damn thing. He's headed back to the mental institution. 
he's not ever getting out. Initially, there was a slight bit more conclusion where the old classmate was arrested for murder, and this was delivered in like a radio broadcast, and that was necessary to appease the censors, but it didn't wind up getting included in the film. That would have been even more anticlimactic. It would have been. Yeah. So at this point, you know, the, that guy is out of mind. He got away with it. Yeah. And that's just it. There is nothing, there's nothing happy about this movie's ending. Yeah, it's very much a tragedy, and he's he's a tragic he's a tragic character, just all around. Everybody, uh, you know, both of them are. She loses her life, and for what? Right. Exactly. And you you just kind of this movie going, well, what was all that for? It's a bracing film. This is this is not a pleasant sit. So much of this is, so much of this is the theme of powerlessness. I mean, that really is a theme that resonates throughout the entire film. At no point is this going to be a movie where anybody even gets a moment of happiness. When they think they have, it's just a pre- it's just a preface to tragedy. Yeah, it's gonna get it's gonna get like yanked away right under their feet. The performances are so damn good in this film. I mean, uh, what more what more do you say? Having an effect named after it, that effect is only used a total of four times throughout the entire film, and um and on two sets. Yeah, which would have been very tiresome. Oh yeah, uh, which, uh, by the way, were were miniatures set on their side. That's how he did that. That's what I'd read. That's what I'd read. Um, yeah, very good miniatures. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back in the day when they could really do them. I mean, this just this is this is a complex little thriller. At the same time, I do kind of have to feel like I do kind of lean towards Hitchcock's interpretation of it. That, for all the great themes, for all the greatness in it, it's okay just to step back and see it as a movie. Yeah. I don't intend that as an insult. I, th- I think it's a really damn good movie. Yeah. But I, I don't know that it's trying to say... It's not trying to be a profound work of art. It's just really damn good at what it is. I mean, in some places, yeah, kind of. Um, like... There's like especially like the dream sequence in the middle, mm-hmm. which is very good. Yeah, it's um, there's a special credit for that. Uh, one guy is responsible for working all that out. But but yeah, speaking of colorful God, <laughs> oh, I mean seriously, the restoration they did on this thing was beauty. Uh, uh, I think the most striking set piece uh, is the the um, restaurant. That he keeps going back to like it's all red, and uh, everybody in the restaurant dresses in like muted like blacks and blues, except for her. Yeah, uh, like she's in she's in like a, a emerald green dress at the first, and then like when he takes her back there, um, like on their first quote unquote first date, she's dressed in. Kind of a similar type, kind of thing. Something that stands out, but it's just it's great contrast. It's great. Um, the colors are very, very vibrant. And there's some amazing shots in the film. Uh, the shots where he's trailing her are just some really beautiful scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's this 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 was Hitchcock really working in his prime. Uh, I mean, there, as I said, the atmosphere is always so tense in this film. And a lot of that does come from how he shot his scenes. I knew how to paint a picture. What can I say? 
Um, but yeah, some more symbolism for you. The MacGuffin of the film being like the portrait of the lady. That is very symbolic of the entire film because it's kind of chasing after uh, a thing that doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. And all that. Or that really maybe didn't exist in the first place. You know, just that portrait and that that uh, character of the um, of the um, the great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, chasing after an image. And that's that's such a theme that runs through this film. I mean, it, it really it's some it's something interesting. Uh, it, it's funny because Hitchcock suffered from that greatly. After all. Uh, that was very much a real-life theme that he had. Again, read about his issues with women, and you'll see that one quite a bit. Boy, it's going to be interesting when we get to the birds. Oh, God, yeah, I was just going to mention that. His, the, maybe next year. Maybe for one, next but, year, maybe for next year. But, yeah, the way he treated Tippi Hedren on that was... Ugh. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that, you know, you almost wonder, did nobody on set go, Wow. This is this is a little familiar, isn't it, man? Right. It's like I think you got some issues to work out there, bro. But I don't know. I mean, as I said, this is just this is just a really damn good film to throw on. I mean, I want to make it clear. I do think it's a great film, and I, I'm not trying to underplay that. It's a great film. It, it is a legitimately great film, and it's absolutely worthy of study. I'm only trying to respond to the idea of it as the single best, but that's because I don't typically believe in the single bests. Even my favorite film, I wouldn't call the greatest film of all time. Same. I mean, that's just... But, I mean, this is this is a really damn good film. If you can put it on, do so. It's well worth seeking out. I mean, I don't know how much more I have to say about the thing, to be honest. Yeah, we, we covered it pretty well. You know, again, put it on. It's... Uh, one thing we didn't know is Bernard Herrmann's score. Oh yeah, as always. As always, um, it's it's very haunting. It's been used countless times before. Uh, one of the best places it was used was on uh, the artist at a very key sequence. Uh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. In a very key sequence in that wonderful film there's a there's a, a usage of the of the score from this film in that herman was to hitchcock what john williams is to spielberg i mean that's all there is to be said about it, it you can't think of one's work without the other so uh, this is just i mean this is just dynamite stuff from him again well worth your time should we uh, talk about what's next yes next is a continuation of Hitchcocktober with another brilliant uh, Jimmy Stewart film, a Rear Window. One that, like this film, has been much parodied, much lifted from. Oh yeah, we will be uh, we'll be tackling that one uh, very shortly. This is one that in film school uh, we studied meticulously, so I'll definitely have a lot to say on that one. Good. Uh, all I can say is if if. Even Vertigo, to that extent. But um, you can, if you ever have a chance to see that one in theater, do so, because um, it's you can feel the full effect. But anyway, that's next. You can find us on our main blog at thefilmroom.podbean.com. We post notes from the episode, 
and all this stuff. Um, you can find us at our companion blog at thefilmroomlobby.wordpress.com where you can find a lot of supplemental essays that are being written. Some directly relating to the podcast, but so far most not, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, it all relates, of course. It's all film stuff. Uh, to the to the to the greater conversation that we that we build. These are these are the, the topics that don't make for great podcasts, but make for good written pieces. Yeah. So yeah, um, you can you can hit us up on there. You can find us on our twitters uh, at at filmroomcast. I am at permanent man prd. Austin is at untitled user. Find us on Facebook. Like us there. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. Facebook.com slash the film room. And you can email us with suggestions, uh, fan mail, hate mail. Not too much hate mail, though. Feedback. Lots and lots of feedback at uh, filmroompodcast at gmail.com. Till next time. Till next time on Hitchcocktober. Good evening. Thank you.